Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Oh, I know it's a bad day out there. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good. We're really glad you've chosen to be here on this, uh, this summer weekend and a huge hate again to the online community. If you've got a Bible again, I'd love you to turn to the book of Lamentations. We're coming to the end of our unexpected summer series, Lakes, Lemonade, and Lamentations. So if you've got a physical copy or you've got your uh, virtual copy, we're going to hang out in Lamentations chapter 4 today. Now I need to start and just be honest right up front. Lamentations chapter 4 truly is one of the darkest, if not the darkest chapter in the whole book of Lamentations, which is best described color-wise as gray or ink black. Honestly, it's actually one of the most gloomy and dim passages in all of Holy Scripture. Is there light in the passage? Yes, but it's, it's dim at best. Like twilight or just before dawn, the light is almost extinguished. Reading this passage for me this week and probably for you today is like almost drowning. When you think that you're done, there's no oxygen and the pressure of water is all around you on all sides, you think you're going to die. And then suddenly, at the last minute, you're able to come up to air. Anyone want to leave now before we get going? It's a tough, tough passage. And as we're going to see, there's a reason why I called this sermon today, The End is Coming. For some, that end is judgment. Others, it's redemption. For some, it's going to be ongoing darkness. And for others, it's light. But here's my challenge today to you and all of you listening and watching wherever you might be. Listen very carefully to what the Lord is about to say. Because the truth is, the end is coming for all of us. But the question that God is going to pose to us on this summer Sunday is this. Which end will you choose to embrace? Again, to me, as I read chapter 4 this week, it is so obvious why people don't read, pray through, or do devotional times in this part of God's Word. But as I've been going through this series, and as I've been reflecting even on my own walk, I'm starting to realize that the most boring, scary, and confused parts of Scripture actually deepens our faith. Our faith begins to expand. Our faith starts moving from churchy sayings and bumper sticker Christianity and sound bites off the internet to a fully orbed and deep, deep, robust faith, which we now desperately need to live for Jesus in our highly complex, globalized, and pluralistic world. And so for the second last week, we're going to gather again together right now in God's Word with the certain knowledge that God promises that all of His Word is God-breathed and all of it is useful to build us up in our most holy faith. Now, before we go into chapter 4, a place where innocence is removed, where justice is vanished, into basically a cold night where screams never seem to end and purpose in life is removed. We need to stop right up front and look. We again need to remember why all of this book was written, why this happened in history, and why this has happened even to some of us listening or sitting here today. Let me remind you today, God is not a thug waiting in an alley with a knife to have fun. God is not an abusive husband beating on his loved ones. God is not a distant figure that just doesn't give a rip about humanity and walks away. Never forget 
that this book was about those that he was in deep relationship with. It was love. It was marriage. It was union. It was the idea of covenant. What did God say right when he brought them out of the land of Egypt? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is how he starts the Ten Commandments. And never forget, the Exodus has the best parts of any movie you watch. It's a strong love story. There's a savior, a warrior getting all the bad guys. It's shock and awe and tender looks. It's everything you want in a chick flick and an action film all in one. And after God does all of that, God then says to his beloved people, now we have relationship, which I remind you, you did not earn. Now I've taken you out of slavery. Now we're joined like in a marriage situation. We must work on and maintain this, not only for ourselves, but also for the world, because I have chosen you as a nation so the other nations of the world get to know there's a God that loves them too. They're bought, buying into demonic garbage and idols, but I am about to show the world through you who I am. And then at that moment, he gave them unbelievable promises. This is what we learned last week out of the book of Deuteronomy. God said, if you are faithful in this covenant, then he says, I will grant you, the Lord will grant that your enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They'll come at you from one direction, but they're going to flee from you in seven. This is my promise to you. But on the other hand, he said, if you walk away from me, if you play games with sin again, if you kiss the mouth of idols, if you flirt going back to that bondage I relieved you from, then he says in that same passage, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but you will flee from, flee from them in seven directions. So after all, all summer, we've learned this. Wayne and I have both preached this. After years of warning, Years of pleading, years of trying to save this marriage. God's word is given, sending the prophets over and over again, including Jeremiah. I love what Wayne said a few weeks ago. He said, Jeremiah came to the people of God for 40 years and wept before them. And Lamentations is the exclamation point to his ministry. They chose not to learn. And so everything that God told them that was going to happen has now come to pass. The loss of favor and curses are now fully felt. And as we've seen so far this summer, Lamentations is just a recounting of the results of the people walking away from God and then God turning his back on them. So now at this moment in Lamentations 4, the songwriter cries out a song which most people would never download. It's a song about thinking on days gone by of lost then and lost now. Well, it sounds like country music, I suppose. Maybe you would. <laughs> Sorry, I don't like that. Anyway, side note. Anyway... We all know this, right? Loss is magnified only when you look back to what you used to have. And this next song, this grand rec room, this chant is all about that loss. Chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold has become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at the head of every street. The city of God once was like gold and diamonds, rich, powerful, strong, unbreakable. It was brilliant. It shone with economic and political success. But more importantly, 
It once shone with the luminous uh, presence of God himself. The very essence of light and fire was among them. Heaven was touching earth within the holy of holies. But now the gold is covered in blood, in dust, in dirt, in death itself. What was once held with such reverence, with such awe, is now on the streets scattered, strewn on a loss and on a scale that we have never, or our parents or our grandparents, never have experienced, even in the worst depression in history. How precious were the sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered pots of clay, the work of a potter's hand. Unlike gold or diamonds, pots can break at any moment. They're cheap and they're disposable. Like the housing market that we all watched in the U.S. in the last few years, what was once worth so much has now been reduced to almost nothing and abandoned. But there's more. See, it was in this everyday item that reminded us that we are nothing more than animated dust. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Yes, we are made in the one who is eternal and we have great value. But we as human beings are not in control. We are not sovereign. There's only one name where glory should be given, and it's not us. The clay cannot pretend to be something it's not. It was Isaiah the prophet who cried out this, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Uh, Who is he who is a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground? Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Or does he say, or does the work say, You have no hands? By using the image of the pot, we are reminded again of our place in the universe. The song continues. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like an ostrich in the desert. The jackal, he says, loves young people enough to feed them, but the situation has become so bad in the city that innocence is no longer loved or felt. People are turning on each other. They're just like the ostrich. Now, I stopped this week and went, what does this have to do with anything? I'm an urbanite who lives in Ajax. I go to the zoo three times a year. I have no clue what this means. Well, what I found out this week is in ancient times, ostriches were used as a symbol of being deeply heartless. And here's why. When they had their young, they birthed their eggs, basically. They would go into the desert, dig a hole, have the eggs, and walk away and never come back. And what God is saying in this situation is, my people have become so heartless, they don't even care about the innocent ones that are dying because of your sin. Because of the thirst of the infant's tongue, verse 4, to the roof of the mouth it sticks. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. For the ones who once used to eat delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie in ash heaps. Even children are now walked by. They're left to die. It's a harsh world, the Bible says, when God takes his hands of protection off. After the people chose other gods, which of course would not show up, even the innocent die. The most vulnerable are are talked about, but then he moves to the rich upon rich, those that weren't vulnerable at all, those that ate the best food, those that had the best clothes in ancient times, draped in purple. The Bible says they fall too. Even they now are poor, penniless, impoverished. They're dying. Money, sex, power did not cover them from God's move to expose them for their own sin. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand to turn to help her. Sodom, you would recall, was consumed by holy fire for not one sin, like we like to say, but all sorts of them. They were caught by surprise. They had no time to panic, reflect, suffer, wonder, or question. It just happened. But Jeremiah cries out here, unlike them, this is prolonged. And so the writer of melancholy songs continues his litany over every level of society. Verse 7, their princes 
were brighter than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies. Their appearance was like sapphires, but now they're blacker than soot. They are not even recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled to their bones. It has become dry as a stick. The leaders, they fall too. Never forget, they could have stepped in, right? They could have called the people back to God, to justice, to holiness, but they chose not to do it. Look at the description here. It says that they were powerful, they were rich, but also they were very attractive. They were striking, they were beautiful, they were gorgeous people. When people walked by them, they gave them that sort of primal double look. You know what I'm talking about, when a really beautiful person walks by? Oh, oh, that's what they were. But did it matter? Did their beauty work towards a positive? No, it didn't. They didn't escape evil. They didn't escape God's wrath. And so as we already saw in chapter 2, things are more than bad. The summary is awful. The city is swept aside. The temple is burned down. Children are dying. Mass slaughter. Accounts of famine that are now leading to cannibalism. But then we come here in the scriptures. The act of cannibalism is actually further described further edged into our minds like an image you never want to see, but once exposed, you just can't get it out. Like a virus, it cannot be beaten or found. It will haunt us well-protected North Americans. As we read the Holy Scriptures, we say we so value. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away from lack of food from the field. With their own hands, with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who have become their food when my people were destroyed. I read this this week and said, this is just too much. I mean, it's too much. It's too much, God. I just, what do you want me to even say about this? What is this even doing in your holy scriptures? And then I went back and started reading through all of Deuteronomy 28. All the great promises that God had given his people that we started with, but also the warnings. And to my shock, I discovered something. That God had said to his beloved people, if you turn on me and I have to give you over to the idols and the demonic that you so love, in the end, you will be sieged and you will end up eating your own children. He had already told them this was going to happen. And they said in their hearts, God isn't serious. Deuteronomy 28, 53. Because of the suffering that your enemy will afflict on you during a siege, you will eat the fruit of your own womb, the flesh and sons of your daughter, sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his brother or his wife he loves or his surviving children, and he will not give to one of them any flesh of the children that he is eating. The most gentle and sensitive woman among you will begrudge her husband she loves and her own sons and daughters. This, I mean, this, oh my goodness. The afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege. And people say the Bible is boring. The worst has happened. The children are dying on the streets and in mother's arms. They're helpless to do anything, but they just watch and then they start eating them. Again, I said to God, is this fair? I mean, this is too much. Where's your love, I thought? Why is this in Holy Scripture? But again, we need to stop as very well-protected North Americans and be honest about what this really is and what it's not. Like I shared a few weeks ago, one scholar put it this way. Hear it closely. By isolating the fall of Jerusalem from the historical chain of cause and effect, 
Of course it's possible to review God's actions in decimating the population as unjust, unethical, unloving, actually thuggish. But when viewed as in the sequence as a whole, the destruction of this nation is, is seen as a fulfillment of many of the promises of punishment for willful and open sin against the God that loved them and supposedly they loved. Like all children, hear this, their destiny is deeply involved with that of their parents who showed little of any signs of rearing their offspring to love the God that had saved them. Their children, not God, was responsible for their own children's doom. Not just because they decided to kiss the mouth of idols. There's another reason too. In near ancient Eastern rules of war, there were rules of war. A whole city could surrender and be spared the sword in famine. But they decided that they knew better. So they and their king chose to resist the Babylonians that God had sent and chose to resist God himself. They, by their actions, sealed the fate of the whole community. The corporate nature of that covenant carries with it corporate responsibility. The callous indifference of the wanton, selfish parents to the destiny of their own offspring shows the depths of depravity which the Judeans have now sunk. Instead of bringing up their children to love God, they sold them into emotional and spiritual bondage to the idol Baal, which truly in the end is Lucifer. And so now the children die because of their parents' sin. Compelled to keep singing, In the middle of the lament and wail, the prophet then honestly talks about the false security God's people had. This is what God's people said by their actions. Don't you know, John, we're saved. We're good. We're we're God's children. God would never judge us like that. That Deuteronomy stuff was exaggeration for effect. He would never keep us accountable. He he would never uh, come and say, since we're married, we have to be really faithful. Come on. Listen to what God says about us. We're elect, we're called, we're predestined. Before the beginning of time, God knows us. Unlike all those other pagan people, they're going to burn in hell. We've got our fire insurance and we can sin because grace is just going to keep coming on and on and on, right? Wrong. The relationship will never be removed because it is always a gift and never will be removed. But God will come and still give justice even to his own people. The Lord is full vent to his wrath, verse 11. He has poured out his fierce anger. He's kindled a fire in Zion that has consumed the foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's population, that enemies or foes could ever enter the gates of Jerusalem. I found out that this was called the popular theology of Zion, that the people of God thought that Jerusalem was so sacrosanct that God would never, ever allow it to be damaged. But then Isaiah came, and Jeremiah came, and Ezekiel came, and they said to them, God is love, but he is also holiness. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You are in covenant. And they said, we're not interested. The rich, the powerful, the political, the parents, even the innocent, now feel the result of sin. Then the song moves to the heart of the issue. Listen closely, because it's all about us now. Those that knew better, those that read scripture, those that prayed, those that were shepherds of the people actually become wolves. They had begun to build a religious worldview of syncretism and compromise. Those that should have called for holiness and mediated forgiveness as prophet and priest had actually opened up the doors for judgment because they just thought it was easier and more palpable to sin. 
So God at this moment in the song looks right at the religious leaders, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, face to face. But it all happened, verse 13, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets like men who are blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares touch their garments. The song continues admitting and then confesses a hard confession because not only does it talk about the sins of the religious leaders, it then says, you know what? We thought, we just thought we could get help. So we phoned Egypt up and said, come help us. We know God's sending these people. Jeremiah's warned us. But you know what? We're going to gather as many nations and pagan kings to help us out. And everything's going to be okay. And Egypt does show up and relieves the siege only for a moment. Then gets beaten back and, and, and they flee. See, here's the point. They couldn't drop their pride enough to ask God for help. So they had to go to others. Why? Because they did not want to change the way they were living. More, however, our eyes have failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watch for a nation that could not save us. Our end was near. Our days were now numbered, verse 18, for our end has come. The Lord's anointed. Our very breath was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. You're going, well, what's that? Well, it's talking about their king. King Zedekiah at the time was the one who actually installed all sorts of garbage spiritually and only rarely listened to Jeremiah. And so he himself said, we will resist. Remember, a king was a spiritual ruler and a political ruler. And so as the siege got worse, he fled. And history tells us that in the plains of Jericho, he was caught by the Babylonians. He was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. He was beaten. His eyes were burned out, and he was thrown into jail the rest of his life until he died. Even the king, they cried out, is broken. There is nothing left. But suddenly the song at the very end switches. Suddenly, only for a moment, in the middle of this ink-black experience, hope stirs. You see, the gaze of the one that brought so much destruction is now moving to another person, another people. You see, God the warrior, who we talked about last week, is about to raise his right hand in another direction, south. There's another nation named Edom, who had had an active role in promoting the destruction of Jerusalem. Edom comes from Jacob's brother, Esau. God was watching them too. They decided to sin against their own half-brother. When the Babylonians began to invade, they said, we're not going to get involved. And by the way, if we don't, would you give us something? The Babylonians said, no problem. We'll give you all the rural countryside of Judah. And they said, excellent, go get them. And this is how the prophet ends chapter 4. Rejoice and be glad, Edom. Go on. Go on and celebrate. Delight. Have, Have a beer. It's all good. Sit down with your friends. Have a party. But just like our summer, it's going to come quick. It lasts for a moment, and then winter's coming. Twilight is all around you, Edom, and you think it's noonday. You don't think God has been watching you too? You're wrong. And just like we've been held to account, my half-brother, so you also will be. O daughter of Edom, you who live in the land of us, but to you also the cup now will be passed. You will be drunk and you will be stripped naked. O daughter of Zion, verse 22, here's the great hope right here. Your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile, but you, O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin 
and will expose your wickedness. And so the last song comes to an end like that. Now the question we all are wrestling with as we read this rarely connected part of Scripture is what in the world can we not only intellectually learn what is the living God of heaven and earth trying to say to us as a community, to a family, to an individual, to our small groups, to who we are as a people? Well, let me say this. Hear this, please. The many of you that are not Christians or you have the label Christian, but you know in your heart you do not follow him. This passage takes you to a place you don't want to go, but you must. Lamentations, Jerusalem itself, is an honest picture of all of humanity without Jesus. Because of sin, because we're all made to have relationship with God, but we all walked away because of our sin, we are all, the scripture says, under God's deserved wrath. And no matter how good you are, bad you are, evil you are, kind you are, nothing you do, nothing you own, nothing you achieve, nothing in you or your reality can overcome the chasm between you and God. Look back at the passage, the rich, the religious, the children, the political leaders, the elders, the elite, the king himself, and even Edom, good, bad, and ugly, all fell. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. It's exactly what it says. We for eternity will fall under deserved wrath unless we ourselves turn and he turns and helps us. Listen, I know what the current worldview is. John Lennon penned it so well so long ago. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only the sky. I know that's the cry of humanity, but it's not true. Jesus comes and he himself enforces what we see physically and experientially in Lamentations. Jesus, the great loving teacher, the son of God, said these words also in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those that can kill the body, but cannot take the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, God, capital O, who can destroy both soul and body in where? Hell. Hell is eternity under the experience of lamentations. I love what one person penned. Eternal judgment is God's underlying and ratification of the relationship towards him that we choose in this life. If we have genuine relationship with God now, we'll enter into a fuller experience of it then. If we do not know him now, we will never know him then. Heaven and hell, hear this, are not as much about future reward and punishment. They are the logical outcomes of the relationship we choose with God in this life. Do you want me now? You'll want me so much more then. Do you not want me now? You'll probably see my face and still not want me. It was John Hanna who said these words, No one who's ever going to be in hell will ever be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who's ever going to be in heaven or the new earth will ever ever be able to say, I put myself here. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. Wrath is reality. The question is, especially for you who are not believers, This does not need to be your condition. 
Like these people in the book of Lamentations, you also can turn. You can repent and the wrath will be removed. You do not need to live under wrath in this life or the life to come. God is not just holy. He is mercy. He is love. That's why Jesus came. In Jesus, as Alan always sings in that song, both justice and mercy are met, experienced, and given. Holy fear and holy freedom are seen and experienced. Jesus came and took all the Father's wrath so we could live again. Jesus comes and basically lives lamentations so we don't have to. Listen to what St. Paul said so long ago. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear the world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of everybody to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's in the now. This is current history. God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in his righteousness. What about Jesus' best friend, John, when he penned these words? He understood both sides of the coin. This is how much God loved the world, he wrote. He gave his son, his only son, Jesus, and this is why. So no one, listen, needs to be what? Destroyed. By believing in anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God did not go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger and telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. He came to put things right again, and anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. But... Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since already been under a death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God who was introduced to them. What is God saying to you? It's this. The choice that will ripple into eternity is in your hands. Will you believe that you are under wrath just like lamentations and you're in the need of a savior? Or will you live this life and the next life without the one you were made to know? Will you trust in yourself? Will you trust in other nations and education and sex and money and power? Will you declare, God, you just don't get it and I do? If you do that, you will end up like this book. But if you don't, then in the end, you will be set free and you will have great love and mercy given to you. The question is this before you today. The end is coming. What end do you want? Many of us, including myself, whether recently or a long time ago, we came to this conclusion. By God's help, we went, man, I I really do need a Savior. So then we come as followers of Jesus we who've experienced this grace and mercy. And then the question that's asked of us today is, well, what is God saying to us? We're not under that wrath anymore, right? Well, sort of. Here's what God's saying to some of you this morning. Hear it, please. Christian, don't flirt with sin. Run. You don't ever have to experience lamentations in your life. Job is a different story. Lamentations is willful sin that leads to judgment. Job is innocence that's assaulted. It's two very different experiences. Hear this. Wrong thinking can destroy us by causing us to act wrongly. Is God love? He is. Is God never going to leave us or forsake us? That's our truth. Is God promising us all the time eternal security? Yes. In this church we hold very strongly. Once God moves in, you can't kick him out. God will never leave you or forsake you. But... If you willfully, continually, 
sin, he will deal with you. He will deal with you. One preach, we are going to be called to moral and spiritual accountability. All of us have a past as well as a future in which we will be held accountable as Christians. There will be a harsh and tragic words in the future for those that think that freedom and pleasure is the goal of human existence. By God's grace, those are gifts in due season. But this is a far different matter than the goal, ready, of radical autonomy. I can do what I want. That latter is a false God that always leads to catastrophe like seeing in Lamentations. Hear this. God grants peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And a freedom for his children comes through embracing the gospel, redemption from the effects of sin, and renewal when we become like Jesus. And then this is the promise. Hear this. God will not prolong your exile. Your relationship with God will never be removed, but your wickedness will be exposed. That's true then, and it's true now. One of the passages we're praying over our whole church fervently is 2 Corinthians 5. It is a passage about loving God, but it's interesting how it says in verse 10 at the end, to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christians, that each one may receive what's due to them done in the body, whether good or bad. What is God saying to some of you this morning? It's this, just be honest. Just repent, confess to God and also to others. It is time to expose yourself in a way you never have before so mercy can be given. Remember, darkness never leads to freedom. Exposure and confession always does. And is this not revival in its complete form? God's mercies we sing are new every morning. His power is in you so you don't have to continue to sin like this. You, hear this, never need to become lamentations as a Christian. But again, if you choose to, it will happen. Repent. Find life. Find hope. Find deliverance. Find freedom. Find freedom from this stuff that continually you eat at and brings death. Gossip. Slander. Division in the church. Rebellion against leadership. Lust. Orgies. Drunkenness. The list goes on and on in Scripture. God is not a God waiting to shoot us down. He is a God that wants to give us one word freedom. But if we think as Christians that we can play the game, I'm in, I'm predestined, God loves me, and I don't have to live a responsible life that comes out of that love, you are sorely mistaken. God comes to one group of you and says, you need a Savior and you need to acknowledge it. To another group of us, and I have no clue who you are, he comes to you today and says, I am deeply, deeply, deeply in love with you, but hear me. The double life you are leading must end now. I did not save you to go back to what you came from. I end with this. I end with hope. That last verse, or second last verse, is a huge promise for us. It's a heavy passage. It's a deep passage. It's a dark passage. But the light must be looked at. Your punishment will end, Israel. He will not prolong your exile. It's really important to catch this. You see, at a time that God has determined, Jerusalem and Judea will be reconstituted. It remains an ongoing process. But God's hope is given to these people even in the middle of their sin. You say, well, John, what does it matter? I'll tell you why. We live in a world that's difficult. We live in a world that's never going to be right. We live in a world where we're going to fail and we're going to fail others and they're going to fail us. We live in a world where, and let's be honest, 
the environment's in real trouble. We live in a world where war is everywhere and religious war is growing in a way we haven't seen since the Middle Ages. We live in a world now that's globalized. It's more complex. It's difficult. We live in a world where plagues are real. We live in a world where injustice is seen on our news and on our internet every single day. Like I said a few weeks ago, or last week, we live in a world where slavery is huge business. We, we live in a world where, where people do dark things that we'll never know about. We live in a world that's just tough. And in the middle of a tough world, is there light? Yes, there's family, there's friends, there's promises, there's faith, there's many good things. But you know what? Honestly, we all know what we live in. And that is why verses like this are given at the end. Because God declares throughout history these words, your exile will not be prolonged. It's rarely preached in church anymore, but let me end with this. Jesus really is coming back. He really is. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything right. And that is what we must grasp to. His birth, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. That is how we can keep going in a very difficult world. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was about to be murdered by the Nazis, he held on to the resurrection of Jesus and his return and declared, justice is coming. This is how we hold on. It's not a pipe dream. It's truth. I cannot wait for Jesus to come back and stick his holy finger into our ground and heal it of all the diseases we've experienced. Can't you? I can't wait for the water to be clean again. I'm really excited to see a dodo bird again. I am. I am excited that the exile isn't forever. And for 2,000 years, we as Christians have held to the promise he is going to return. And this is what Lamentation 4 tells us. We are living in a dangerous time, but hold on. He is coming back. So let's ask for the strength we need to keep going in this life. Lord, hear our prayer. I mean, Lord, man, honestly, as a community... These passages don't fit so well with, you know, us. We don't get all of it. I still don't get all of it. It's, it's difficult. It's... But here's our prayer this morning. Number one, Lord, we'd ask for your Holy Spirit to come with genuine conviction on some people that just don't know you. And they're under wrath and they don't think they need a savior and you're just starting to open the dialogue with them. And I, I pray, we pray, not out of pride because we're better, because we're not. Lord, just may this begin the process where they say yes to Jesus. I pray God over not only this church, I pray over all of Durham that people would know that they're in trouble so they need a savior. I ask this in Jesus' name. I also pray too, Lord, for some of my brothers and sisters who are so loved by you but are playing this dangerous game. I just pray in Jesus' name that you would bring them to the point where, honestly, without all the weird guilt stuff, just genuine brokenness, come before you and say, oh my goodness, I've been eating at this table that just brings death. I'm done. Set me free. I repent. I come back like the prodigal son. I'm running towards dad. That, that's what we need. I pray this in Jesus' name. I, I, I pray for prodigals right across this church, those who used to be here to come back en masse, not to us, but to you. And lastly, here's what we pray. 
God, give us hope. Let us remember that the exile is not forever. No matter how good or bad things get, remind us of what is coming. Remind us of what is coming. Because if we don't look to the future, we can't live in the now. So I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give every elder, every pastor, every Mac person, every MTL, every person that comes to this church, all levels of what we are, a very clear vision of Jesus and his return. So we'll be faithful, knowing that our hope is there, but also we're gonna have to give account to how we've lived. Holy Spirit, last prayer today. I pray for this church and myself that you'd come and give us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why? So we never end up like lamentations. I ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who's the God we will worship till we die and meet him again. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.